a Bible, turn over to um, 1 Timothy. If you need to use a pew Bible, that's going to be page 932, 932 in one of our pew Bibles. And the pastoral epistles is a term that we use that discusses both 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, and those three together are called the pastoral epistles, and primarily because Paul was kind of writing to his young disciples who were taking over leadership in the churches, Timothy in Ephesus and Titus in Crete, and so they've been kind of affectionately lumped together as the pastoral epistles. Um, this letter, these letters, these three letters, and, and chances are this year we're going to get through 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. I don't think we're going to get through Titus, but, but that's okay because a lot of what's in Titus is repeated in 1 and 2 Timothy. These letters are a, they're letters from the, the kind of aged, dynamic preacher of the gospel towards the end of his decades and decades of faithful ministry to the Lord. Um, it is at the twilight of his life of gospel proclamation. Just so you get a sense canonically where these fall, First and Second Timothy and Titus are letters that Paul wrote after what we have recorded of Paul in Acts 28. Now, by the time we get to Acts 28, as you've been here for, if you've been here for a couple of years, you know, when we studied Philippians and Galatians, we would go to the book of Acts and show you how those churches started. But, but Timothy and Titus were written after the events of the book of Acts. So, in other words, if you're familiar, the book of Acts ends, how's it end, in Acts chapter 28 with Paul imprisoned in Rome. He kind of has a, a loose house imprisonment because it ends with him, with people visiting Paul and him proclaiming the gospel to them while he's in house arrest, and that's how Acts ends. It, it's not really a cliffhanger. It, 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 it's an ending without an ending in some ways, and, and I think that's deliberate. You know why? Because what what does Acts record? Acts records the birth and movement of the church. Well, that hasn't finished, right? We are in Acts 29. It's, we are still going on. So, so it's, it's fitting that the book ends with this non-ending because the work is still happening. But we know historically, Paul was released from prison after what we hear, see in Acts chapter 28. And after he was released, he wrote 1 Timothy. And then he was rearrested and then finally executed, and 2 Timothy was written when Paul was rearrested, and he knows he is not coming out of this alive. I mean, he knows he's going to get delivered. He just knows that the deliverance he's going to experience is not going to be physical. He will be delivered and brought into the kingdom by having his head removed by the empire of Rome. And you can see that coming out in 2 Timothy. So, just to give you a sense of how these are written, 1 Timothy was written, Paul gets out of prison, he's got fruitful ministry, he's excited, he wants the work to continue. 2 Timothy, Paul's back in prison, and he knows this, he will not survive it. And so, he is writing, and you hear, even though he gets released when he writes 1 Timothy, he is on the end of decades long of gospel proclamation. Right, wherever Paul goes, two things either, one of two things happen, sometimes both, revival or riots, right? And wherever that guy goes, and you got to love people like that, that just one of the two is going to happen. You never know what's going to happen, but that's what's happening in Paul's life. He knows that that time is coming to an end, and he is concerned, and he wants to talk to these young men, these young churches, that to make sure that the gospel ministry would and could continue long after his own departure. 
And for me, as I thought about where we are at the life as a church, where we are at society, that's a, that's, that's a perfect fit for us. In a sense, the pastoral epistles are the marching orders of one gospel generation to the next gospel generation. It's an exhortation saying, team, this is what matters. Get your head in the game. Think rightly about what's happening. Put your life where it matters. Value these things. Immerse your life about them because the curtain is closing, and this is what we got to do. And and, and not only what we have to do, but where we have to do it and, and why we do that. So we're going to study the pastoral epistles this next year for three broad reasons, and here they are. We're going to study the pastoral epistles because these letters are good for postmodern times, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a little bit. But these letters aren't just good for postmodern times. These letters are good for our time as a local congregation at this point in our lives. But it's not just good for postmodern times, the culture we live in. It's not just good for our time as a church celebrating its 50th anniversary. These letters are good for any time because of the key universal truths that Paul, through the inspiration of the Spirit, puts in there. So this morning's going to be an introduction to the pastoral epistles, but it's going to be different than many of my introductions. Most of the time, I'm trying to tell you the essence of the book we're studying. I give you an outline, maybe the structure, what's the key point of the book. Today, though, it's, it's going to be more about why we need to study these books. And, and be, but, but in light of that, as we understand that, unpack that, you'll get a sense of what the books are about as well. I just want to let you know that this will be a little bit different than my typical introduction. So this morning, why we're studying the pastoral epistles, and then next week we'll jump into the study more thoroughly as we read this amazing book, 1 Timothy. Well, let's look at them one at a time. The pastoral epistles are good for postmodern times. Now, some of you are like, all right, we're going to talk about postmodernism in church. And some of you are like, oh, man, we're going to talk about postmodernism in church. And some of you are like, I have no idea what postmodernism is. And some of you think you know what postmodernism is. Let me explain why I use this word. You don't hear too many sermons talking about postmodernity, but it's important. And it's important because if you stop and think about it, you know that every one of us lives in an age. We live in an an epoch. We live in a time, a historical moment. Maybe it was the Industrial Revolution. Maybe it's the Enlightenment. Maybe it's the Information Age. We all know that we inhabit moments of history and time. And many of you are familiar with these sociological labels, right? I mean, especially in the last couple generations, whether you are a... Uh, a baby boomer, or what, what's the generation that came before the boomers? The builders, right? The build, maybe if you're one of the builders, the World War II generation, or you're the boomers, or you're Generation X, or a millennial, or Generation Z, we all understand, if you stop and think about it, that there are certain uh, values, ideas, priorities, and beliefs that shape a group of people unique to their historical moment. That, that, that's what's going on here. And, and the, the challenge is, the less you are aware of that, the more it has influence over your life because you just think that's the way it is, right? So that's why when like a Gen Z runs into a, 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 a builder or a boomer, they're like, man, what is wrong with those people? They're so out of touch. No, it's not. It's just that Gen Z has been shaped by a historical moment with different values and priorities and cultural uh, um, issues that was very different than the boomer, 
right? And it's not wrong or right. It's just radically different. And so when they kind of do life together and they find that they're so different, that's what's going on. And the less you're aware that you are shaped by a historical time and moment and culture, the less you can kind of transcend those differences and connect. The more you are aware, the more you can connect, right? That's just, that's just the way that kind of works. You know, it, we often think, well, this is just the way it is because that's how life is. Well, yeah, if you grew up in, as a millennial in Southern California, but not if you were a, of the boomer generation in Nairobi, Kenya, right? It's, yeah, yes, there are cultural issues, but also historical issues. Now, we're familiar with those labels. You all kind of know them. You probably know what generation you're in. But did you know that there's also what we might call a meta uh, culture above all that? And for the last century, Western civilization has been in a massive transition from one era to the next. We are moving from the era of modernity to what's called post-modernity. And that is the time in which we all inhabit in some way, uh, shape, or form. Now, the transition hasn't happened entirely, and that's why some of this is hard to define, but it impacts every single one of us in this room to varying degrees. So on the chart behind me, if you're 90 and younger, which is just about everyone in this room, yeah, uh, you are affected by modernity, by and large, it was predominant, but there was also these inklings of post-modernity. Now, let me explain to you briefly what modernity is, because if you don't know what that is and what, what's post-modernity. The modern period, which is basically 17th century to mid-20th century, obviously came after what's called pre-modern period. The pre-modern period prior to 17th century, the world was ruled by kind of suspicion and mythology, right? We believed in Zeus on Mount Olympus and Odin and Asgard, and, and nature was run by the gods, and we had no clue how things were. We were at the mercy of things unknown, so we came up with myths and superstitions to explain everything. But with modernity, the, the close of that period, modernity came about, what changed it dramatically was the discovery of the scientific method, the sciences, the hard sciences. Those were all developed. Men like Francis Bacon, Rene Descartes, Isaac Newton really galvanized that, no, the world, nature is not some mysterious thing out there. Actually, nature is kind of like a finely tuned machine, physics. And if we understand how that thing works, we not only understand nature, but we can make, submit nature to our benefit. And we've had wonderful things in modern technology, sciences, and medicine because of modernity. Knowledge exploded. And one of the most common things that came from that was the Enlightenment project, hard sciences, the scientific method. And now we were not at the behest of the unknown will of the gods. We just had to figure it out. Science would help us do that. And this grew this kind of optimism, but arrogance that now we know everything there is to know, and we don't need to trust anything else which is also why around that time period, people started to throw out the Bible because they felt like, well, we don't, that was part of a pre-modern mindset. But around the 1930s, uh, a couple of gentlemen, one by the name of Einstein, came up with something called the, the general and special theory of relativity, and Heisenberg came up with the uncertainty principle and said, you think we know how the world works? You don't know anything. The very thing we thought we understood, that the things that were so solid we started to realize from the very halls of science, we have no idea what's going on in this world. We, we, we have scratched the surface 
but we're clueless. And when they discovered that life could be waves and particles, atoms could simultaneously be in two places at one time, they said, oh, forget about it. We, what we thought we knew, we don't know anything. But yet modernity reigns supreme. So if you're 90 or younger, you know, the, the greatest generation or younger, you lived in the, the modernity period, but post-modernity was questioning things. If you're 50 and younger, right about 1970, that's right about the point where modernity gave way to post-modernity, and the suspicion and the questions of postmodernism outweigh the certainty of modernity. And we started to realize we don't know what we thought we knew, and we started to question everything, literature, art, philosophy, science, everything, architecture. If you're 30 and younger, you don't know any other life than the predominant views of postmodernism. Now, since we are in the transition, all of us are a mix of both of these. But if you're 30 and younger, you grew up in a world predominantly guided by the values of postmodernism. But I still haven't said, well, what is it then? And I know for those of you who are, who are into this kind of things, I'm going to give you a horrible definition, but most of you are not, but you do need to know certain things, so let me define it this way. Postmodernism is the loss of a grounding center. In other words, there is no longer the certainty, there is no longer an understanding that there is a fixed point of reference that we can all abide by, whether it's physics, whether it's psychology, whether it's theology. Postmodernism is the loss of a fixed center. Feelings now are judged more correct than facts. Life is a matter of interpretation and process, not understanding and conviction. It's all about the process of trying to understand, but not ever kind of understanding because you can't. Now, let me reel some of you in here that you think, well, this doesn't apply to me. I don't care. This, doesn't, this, this never comes up in my life. Well, it does. And let me give you an example if you are a Christian and you've ever attended a Bible study. Have you ever heard someone say in a Bible study, yeah, that's, that's, that's not what this text means to me. Ever heard someone say that? What in the world? What the text means to you? So does that mean the text means something different to everybody in this room? Well, of course not. It doesn't matter what the text means to me. What matters is the authorial intent. What did the text mean to the person who wrote it? And do I understand that correctly? It doesn't mean anything to me. It means what it meant. Why do people say that? Because of postmodernism. Because it can mean what I need it to mean, and it depends how I want it to mean something. That's the value. Maybe you've heard someone say something like this. Well, that's not how I interpret it. You've ever heard that? And let me tell you what they're not saying. They're not saying, oh, I went to that Pillars of Truth class at Christ Community Church, and I learned the, the, the principles of historical grammatical interpretation, and I've applied that. I've looked at the grammar. I've looked at the history and the culture. And of the possibly two, maybe three ways you could take this passage, I think the evidence is on this one. That is not what they mean. What they mean by saying, that's not how I interpret it is, I don't want it to say that, so I'm going to make it say this, right? Well, where does that come from? Postmodernism, folks. That truth, that reality is subject to the thing I want it to be. You see, in postmodernism, there's only the conversation, but never the conviction of principle that undergirds things. There's only the process of discovery, but never the thing discovered. There's only the journey, but never the destination. There's only the call for diversity, but never the grounding common, the common ground of unity. 
As a matter of fact, what do people often say their life is like right now? I'm just on a journey. Where does that come from, friends? Postmodernism. It's not about arriving someplace. It's not about coming from someplace and getting to someplace. It's about the journey, man. I'm just becoming something. It's about process. That is all the result of a postmodern mindset. That is not how humanity thought prior to, or, you know, there were pockets of that, but that whole concept that's so popular in our culture is called postmodernism. Everything is fluid and in flux. Nothing is fixed. Nothing can be known. Friends, the perfect example of the outworkings of postmodernity can be seen in our society by the rank confusion over gender and human sexuality. That is an outworking of postmodernism at a societal level. Nothing can be truly known. Everything is up for grabs. And the only certainty that you can have is that there is no certainty, and of that you must be certain. Welcome to the world of postmodernity. When I was a doctoral student, I became increasingly convinced that the rise in mental distress and disorder in our culture maps onto the increasing influence of certain aspects of postmodernity in the way we live. Friends, people can only live in a culture of incoherence for so long before it begins to take a psychological toll on them. Let me give you an example. I was talking to a young man years ago, and he wasn't a Christian. I'm forgetting some of the details. But he had held to a view of what's called neo-Darwinism, right? Some of you people call that evolution, but I want to be specific because he was a smart guy, so I wanted to use the right term. So we're talking about neo-Darwinism, the belief that the species basically hands down the genes necessary to ensure the survival of the fittest. The genes that are necessary for the greatest chance to survive get passed on to the next generation. That's one of the tenets of neo-Darwinism, survival of the fittest. And during our conversation, he starts, we see, he kind of morphed into his view that homosexuality had a biological causation. In other words, people are homosexual because biologically speaking, their genetics have oriented them that way. And I said, well, hold on. I said, well, wait a minute. I just want to be clear. I'm not going to take issue with either of your particular beliefs right now, that you hold to neo-Darwinism or homosexuality as biological causation. I'm not disagreeing or agreeing with either. But I want to point something out. You cannot simultaneously believe both of those things. Because if you hold the neo-Darwinism that the genetic code only passes on those genes that give the greatest chance for procreation, then by definition, a gene that cannot reproduce would not translate down. Because by definition, a homosexual gene cannot get its genes into the next generation. It would have been eliminated millennia ago. And he just looked at me and says, he, he had the, 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 the integrity to say, dang, I, I don't know what I need to do with this. And I said, okay, this is what you need to do. You either, one, have to abandon your creation story because it doesn't make sense, it's inconsistent, or you have to abandon your human sexuality story. You cannot hold both of those. They are contradictory to one another. We can only live with incoherence so long 
multiply that view by hundreds of other views that he's not even aware of, and that's going to take a toll on someone. Another example, just to make the point, not much less, much easier to understand, is the prevailing view in our society that, that uh, our driving thing is self-satisfaction, that we want to uh, be self-fulfilled, self-realized. And that's a common thing, right, in our commercials and advertisement. Um, you deserve a break today. That's pretty old school, right? I just, but you guys know what I mean, right? This drive of self-satisfaction is an absolute contradiction to the profound understanding we all share that the essence of love is not satisfying yourself but sacrificing yourself for someone you care deeply about. And yet the the marketing, the media, the culture is telling us our objective is to be a self-realized, self-fulfilled, happy individual, yet we profoundly understand that the essence of love is to give my life away, not to get things for my life. Multiply that by hundreds of other issues, and they're going to take their toll on people at some point. Human beings were not designed to live in an incoherent, ambiguous world. We were designed to live in a world of meaning, of purpose, and significance. And the pastoral epistles is a reminder to us that the gospel message is that meaning, is that purpose, is that significance. And furthermore, at the almost the central heart of the pastoral epistles, go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, there is a statement made by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that flies in the face of post-modernity. This is what Paul writes. He's talking to Timothy. He says, if I delay in coming to him, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. And here's the phrase, the pillar and buttress of truth. I couldn't think of a verse in Scripture that flies more in the face of the time we live in than that the church is the pillar and buttress of truth truth. Because what post-modernity finds most problematic is the claim to a fixed center, a claim of absolute truth, a claim of exclusivity. And by definition, friends, truth is exclusive. And that is exactly what the message of Christ is about. All through the Scriptures, we find that Jesus Christ is the fixed center of humanity. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that Jesus Christ is truth incarnate. John 1, 1, John 1, 14, John 17, 17, that Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, and numerous other Scriptures could be marshaled together that this flies in the face of the very heart of post-modernity. And the church, not, not, not the institutional structures, right? Not buildings and denominations. No, no, no. You and I, if you are a Christian, the, the one called out of the world for God's glory and delight, the church, it is our soul or it is our job to be the pillar and supporter of that reality. Um, English professor who wrote for Newsweek magazine I just, I just dated it, right, because who calls it a magazine anymore? Newsweek app, but it was a magazine then. Her name was uh, Carolyn Kane. She was an English professor, and she wrote an article on the, the loss of thinking in America in general. And after putting her finger squarely on the problem, Professor Kane identified the solution in front of the entire readership of Newsweek, and it was amazing. This is what she wrote. But how can we, how can we revive interest in the art of thinking? The best place to start 
would be in the homes and churches of our land. I thought it was fascinating that she didn't appeal to government or more money for public schools or more college facilities. She identified the church as a key factor to rediscover the art of thinking in our culture. We, friends, need to be reminded and encouraged what it means to be a pillar and buttress of truth in a time when truth itself is in doubt. And the pastoral epistles do that. But secondly, a study of the pastoral epistles is good for our time as a congregation because like our society that's in this time of transition, in some ways, so is our congregation as we hit the 50-year mark of being a fellowship. So look around this room. Uh, Many of us weren't even born when this church was planted, right? Just a handful of us were here back in the early years in the 70s, and none of us were here as charter members back in 1970. We all here, if you call this church your home, we are inheriting this gospel work, just as others will inherit it from us. Just as I inherited this pulpit from Joe Bubar, who preached the gospel from it before me, and he inherited it from Charles Moore before him, and he inherited it from Don Smith before him, and he inherited it from Jim Walker before him, and he inherited it from Bill Hull before him, and he inherited it from Arnold Weeb before him. So one day, I'm going to give this pulpit to another man to continue the gospel preaching ministry of this church. And this is what all of us are going to do. Every one of us in this room is going to hand off a gospel ministry. The question is, what shape will that gospel ministry be in? Every single one of you, if you're a Christian, are here because some man, some woman, a boy or a girl was faithful to obey what Paul told Timothy to do in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, it's using a male pronoun there because Paul was directly talking to the preaching ministry that Timothy had, but we know by other passages in the pastorals, Titus chapter 2, for example, that this applied to the women as well. And notice how many generations are there, three generations, right? From Paul to Timothy, Timothy to faithful men, and those faithful men to others as well, on down the line for the last 2,000 years until it is here in Laguna Hills, California, 2020. We inherited it. We need to hand it off, and we need to understand what it is that we're doing, which is why in the pastoral epistles, Paul's emphasis on doctrine and theology is so rich. As a matter of fact, that's the reason Paul left Timothy to pastor the church at Ephesus. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, Timothy, I'm leaving you there to make sure that some people don't teach other doctrine that would lead people astray or shipwreck their faith. Timothy, in chapter 3, verse 2, if you're going to raise up elders, the one thing I ask that they be able to do, they got to have the character, but the one ability, they got to be able to teach the Word. Chapter 4, verse 11, Paul really kind of ramps it up. He says, I command you to command and teach these things to the people. And then a few verses later in verse 16, he says, keep a close watch on the way you're living and you're teaching. And he even closes the book in chapter 6 saying, teach and urge these things. Friends, this is important for our church, for any church to hear. And here's why. There are 
I mean, there really are many good things that we as a growing church can get involved in, uh, many good opportunities to pursue. I mean, I'm part of, I talk with our missions committee, and, and I, I get stuff, and I get ideas, and I, I mean, water projects in Africa, uh, vision health care clinics in Thailand, uh, mercy ministries to the homeless, food banks and pantries, daycare programs, grief counseling programs, social justice, using uh, excess cash to pay off uh, uh, medical bills of people in the community. There's a ton of things we could do. There's no end of things we could do, but friends, there's only one thing the Bible says we must do. Paul says it in 1 Timothy 6 and 2 Timothy 1, guard the deposit that was entrusted to you. And and here's why I make this point, because the reality is, and, and thankfully, thankfully, there's a lot of great organizations, a lot of great organizations out there who will take on water projects, a lot of great organizations that are burdened for the homeless and and food banks and, and, and things like that. Some Christian, many not. Uh, and, and these are all organizations to be supported, applauded, and they're worthy of time, resources, and our help. I mean that entirely. These are good things for Christians to be involved in. But the reality is, there is no organization on the planet that will do what we are called to do. If we don't proclaim the gospel, nobody's going to pick up the slack, right? If we don't get involved in water projects in Africa, my last church, we had the Alice Water Project. That's what we did. We, we built irrigation wells and brought water to this village in Africa. That was great. But you know what? If we didn't do that, there'd be a lot of great groups that would. So that was okay. There's a lot of opportunities for us to do good things. And if we don't do them, you know what? There's going to be a lot of great organizations a lot of great non-Christian organizations that, are, are, that have a heart for this, that's great. But there isn't a single organization that will proclaim the gospel if we don't do it, right? I mean, there, there's no UN charter that's going to say, man, you know those Christians used to preach the gospel? I'm grateful they're digging wells, but let, let's, let's start preaching the gospel for them. It's not going to happen. There is no uh, administration in America that's going to say, we need more gospel preachers, so let's start a department of gospel preaching as part of the the U.S. government. It's not going to happen. If we don't do it, the job doesn't get done. So as a church, we need to be asking ourselves, what are we doing, right? What are we doing to raise up missionaries? What are we doing to get the gospel to the parts of the world that that most people don't even know exist? What are we doing to raise up the theologians, the pastors, the, the Christian intellectuals of the next generation, the Christian culture shapers? What are we doing to get the gospel ball down the field? Because nobody else is going to do this for us. And we need to be aware of that and keep our eye on the prize. An organizational axiom rings true here. Some of you know it, right? The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing, right? Of of all the many good things we can do, and and God's bringing a lot of great stuff, and I'm hearing people with ideas and visions, and I love them all. I mean, I love, and the harder they are, the more I get excited about it. Like, I was going to go into one, I'll share it maybe at Lord's Supper service tonight. But the point is, of all the good things we can do, we cannot forget the one thing we must do, and that is guard the deposit of the gospel and proclaim Christ in a culture that is denying the existence of truth itself. And so we got to get after that, not just in the use of our time, but the use of our finances. 
All these things matter. But there's a second reason that, that the pastoral epistles are good for, for our time or another reason, and that's because as, as um, individuals who are growing up in this transitional time, there are areas of modernity that we need to realize are problematic and turn from them as well. So the pastoral epistles rightly can critique postmodern mindsets. But we also need to realize that as children of modernity, uh, evangelicalism grew up in that time, and we're influenced by that. And, and we've, we've absorbed some wrong thinking that the pastoral epistles correct and challenge us on. For example, I think sometimes there is an overemphasis on doctrine and knowledge and not enough emphasis of living a transformed life, right? Understanding truth is only as important as incarnating truth. We have to live transformed lives, not just understand more about the gospel. We need to actually live out the gospel. People matter. The community of what God is building matters. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 5 is about entirely. It's about the gospel changing the way we relate to one another, not just on Sunday mornings, but the way we do life together. Christian maturity is not just defined by how much we know, but by how much we're being transformed. I'll give you an example of how modernity has affected Christianity. How often I hear people say something like, well, you know, I, I, I've got this great uh, self-Bible study, and I got me and Jesus, and, and relationships are complicated, and they're hard, and, you know, church, I don't like all that stuff, so it's just me and Jesus at Starbucks, or me and Jesus at the beach, and that's good. You know what that is? That's modernity saying that all you need is knowledge. That, that's the epitome of maturity is that you understand things. And that comes from that period of a love with knowledge and information. And that is not what the Bible teaches. We grow, we live, we change in community with others, right? Friends, what is at the fountainhead of the Christian faith is this being we call God who's triune. Father, Son, and Spirit. That's not individualism. That's community. Unity and diversity and community is at the fountainhead of the Christian faith. So why, as evangelicals, we don't want anything to do with the people of God just blows me away. Well, it doesn't because we're influenced by modernity. We think as long as I got me and Jesus and a good Bible study or whatever, I don't need the people of God. As a matter of fact, they get in my way. That's the point. That's the point. You get in my way, and that exposes immaturity in my heart. That's the point. Get in each other's way. Press us towards the gospel. The pastoral epistles also challenges this modernistic thinking that, that Christian maturity is theological perfection rather than grace, rather than humility, rather than charity. That our corporate gatherings, I love it, honestly, when we have mistakes at this church. I mean, you know, you can only have so much because then it comes a distraction. But I love it we, when we have mistakes. Um, we had one in first service. I don't know if we had it in second service where we learned our lesson. First service is usually a trial run, so you, we work out the kinks. But I love it when we have mistakes in our services because our corporate gatherings should be more like family around the kitchen table rather than showing up for a professionally executed show every Sunday, right? Our lives together should be more like the, um, the waiting room of a hospital than the waiting room of a job interview, right? Where we're, we're okay to show our hurts and pains rather than trying to compete and show how good we got it all together. 
See, that's an example of modernity, that we got it all together. We know what we need to know, and, and we're good. And reality is our lives need to be transformed. And Paul says this, right? First Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself. I like the NIV. The NIV says your lifestyle, or is the NAS, one of the two, and on the teaching, both the way I live and my doctrine matter. Well, then how do we do that, Paul? How do we do that? And he gives us a hint all through the pastoral epistles. He keeps saying, remember, practice, train, immerse yourselves in these things. It's all through the pastoral epistles. Friends, Christianity is not a Sunday sport. If you or I are going to grow in grace and faith and fruitfulness, it's going to require intentionality and practice. Friends, what are you doing This year, do you have a plan in place to grow, to be more like Christ? I mean, if you think it's just going to happen, I got bad news for you. It's not. <laughs> it is not. You're not going to naturally grow to be like Christ. What are you doing to practice and train godliness? Husbands, what are you doing to sacrificially give your life away for the sake of your wives and families? Wives, what are you doing to sacrificially submit to the leadership of your husband and the needs of your family? Single people, what are you doing to sacrificially give up of your time for the good of others, right? How are we doing this? Are you aware of your shortcomings, for one thing, right? Are you aware that you, you run over people's sentences, you don't let them finish? Are you aware that you always turn the conversation to be about you, what are you doing to stop that? Are you aware of your strengths and how to capitalize on that? God has given each of us a role. What are we doing to glorify God and be a blessing to others with that role? How will you practice and train this year? What will your life be immersed in? These are some questions that the pastoral epistles will help us answer. Finally, uh, the pastoral epistles aren't just good for postmodern times or our own time. They are good for any time because of the universal issues that they address, and they happen to coincide with some cultural issues. What does godly leadership look like in the church? If you're a news junkie, maybe you, some of you have heard, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this year, starting the 2020, California has, has passed some legislation mandating that corporations have executive women upon their boards. It is, it is a mandate, and they will be fined if they don't have a certain proportion of women on their boards. Should churches do the same? If so, why? If not, why not? Right? Does God's Word say anything about gender when it comes to leadership in the church? Are we just maybe a kind of an outdated patriarchal system, or is there a divine design between the, behind the leadership structures of God's church. Is the church led by just kind of a CEO model, a charismatic leader, and he calls the shots, everything goes from him down to everywhere else? Or is the church led by a plurality of men that are serving along together sacrificially? Does God's Word address that? What about our responsibilities to our families and to our church family? Is the church an open charity? Are we just responsible for, to take care of everyone regardless of other factors? What responsibility do families have to take on the financial burdens of other family members? 
Do men and women have unique responsibilities in the home and family? Are those all social constructs? Does the man have to be the breadwinner? Or can it be the woman that's the breadwinner? Does it make a difference? Does the word say anything about that? How do we deal with our differences? How do we deal with doctrinal differences in an increasingly pluralistic age? The pastoral epistles asks all these questions and they deal with them. And so that's what we're going to be doing for the next year. Friends, and we have to be getting, we have to get good at this because the world is falling apart. They are buckling under the weight of the incoherency of postmodernism, their own sinfulness, their own immaturity, and their own ignorance and ignoring the Word of God. We cannot afford to be the same. So, I, as a pastor, want to call our church to do some hard things. And I know many of you, you're into that. You like that. And, and you're leading the way. Let's keep doing that. Let's not be a church that hit 50 and said, whew, all right, we did it. Man, that was an accomplishment. Now we got a nice building. Things are okay. Let's cruise. Let's let someone else do it. Mm-mm. Let's be the church that doubles down and says, all right, now What? And not forgetting the many things we could do. Let's not forget the one thing we must do. Double down on the gospel. Guard the deposit that was given to us. I want to end this morning. You can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. I want to end with, with Paul's kind of encouraging words to Timothy. And as I said earlier, Paul is in prison. He knows he's going to die. And I just love what he writes to his young protege. I'm going to skip a particular line there uh, as it talks about his time in prison because it's, it's not, I don't want to take away from his point, so don't get confused. But here it is, 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting at verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, but share in suffering for the gospel. How do we do that, Paul? By the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. But check this out, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Friends, let's pause right there. You, God, knew that you would occupy this historical moment in this cultural time before the ages began, and he has a job for each and every one of you if you are a Christian. Find it out what that is. Pursue it. Before the ages began, he knew we'd be sitting here right now talking about it. He knew you'd be struggling with your struggles. He knew you'd be, be enjoying your blessings before the ages began and which now has been manifested, this purpose and this grace through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And here it is. We sang this in that song, Crown Him with Many Crowns, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. How? Through the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we did nothing to deserve our salvation but it is an act of your mercy and your grace, or as an act of your mercy and grace and love to us that you called us from the world to be a benefactor, an inheritor of all your riches and goodness. Father, forgive us when we get lazy and forget that and get our eye off the ball and think that this world is the world we live for when we're just show sojourners, we're exiles, we're passing through, we are citizens of a different kingdom. And we cannot do that on our own. So help us come together routinely, regularly, like this morning, like tonight, to remind us, keep the main thing, the main thing. 
Lord, because it's so easy to get distracted. Father, we want to see and know as we pass on into glory that we have done our part to make sure that for the next five decades, there will be a gospel witness in South Orange County because of the work that you are doing through this congregation, Christ's Community Church. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.